0: Today on Fuzzy Logic, we are looking at the stranger things as we take it through and investigate the mysteries around us that are being solved by science. That's right, we're going through to the upside down, the other side. We're taking a look at the mysteries and seeing what we can solve using the wonderful skills that we have in science. Coming up right here on Fuzzy Logic today... Good morning, Canberra. My name is Broderick and you are tuning into Fuzzy Logic here on 98.3 XXFM Community Radio. Thank you very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand, but now we are about to launch into... Our Science on a Sunday, our 60 minutes into the science world and today we're delving into the Stranger Things and to help me out with that, I've got Karina in the studio. Good morning, Karina.
1: Good morning, Broderick. Oh, so many strange mysteries we have in store today.
0: We do, we do. And it's it's wonderful because uh, strange things get unearthed all the time and uh, sometimes we can use science to solve them. Some t- Some of the mysteries we're going to be presenting today haven't quite been solved by science yet either so there 's uh, still more to be discovered
1: always more to be discovered
0: <laughs> so let 's jump straight into it because we 've got a couple of stories that kind of kicked off this theme for us mm. when we were thinking about it today and i 'm going to start off with one which I think is a is a mystery within a mystery yes <laughs> <laughs> because we 're talking about the great pyramids which have been uh, Plaguing anthropologists, archaeologists, all the different... Uh, Egyptologists. Egyptologists, all the different ologists. Yes, many uh, <laughs> For many, many... Uh, years and they've been looking into you know, what's actually going on inside those pyramids.
1: What is going on Brad?
0: Well, there's uh, some chambers inside the pyramid. The Great Pyramid of Giza, also known as the Pyramid of Khufu, which was built as a tomb for Pharaoh Khufu, who reigned 4,500 years ago. Um, and they knew of three chambers within the pyramid. There was the King's Chamber, the Queen's Chamber, which were connected by corridors, and the largest of chamber was the Grand Gallery, all subterranean, all below ground. But just recently, researchers have found a new chamber. What? A new chamber. That's right. It is currently called The Void. Uh, <laughs> Very okay. <laughs> so, and, so, is there things in it? Well, this is what they don't know because they found the space. It's sitting about f- between forty and fifty meters above the floor of the queen's chamber. And all they can see at the moment is that there's a big void, there's a big gap, there's a big hole, there's nothing there. Um, They can't even quite tell whether it's one giant space or loads of smaller rooms. Uh, And this is because of the way they're actually seeing it. To see this uh, pyramid, they're actually using cosmic rays.
1: From space. From space, that's right.
0: (laughs) So, uh, it might sound a bit strange, uh, but quite interestingly, uh, the uh, first application of this actually happened many decades ago. Um, and so, it's not just cosmic rays that they're using, but it is uh, a byproduct of the cosmic rays, which are muons. Um, and so muons, uh, for those of you who don't know, like myself up until recently, I knew the name. I didn't I've quite heard know what of it them, was. but <laughs> yeah,
1: I also don't know. What do they do?
0: Well, they're uh, a particle similar to an electron. So they're a subatomic particle. So really uh, small. Really small. Uh, can't see them. And quite similar to an electron in terms of you can't break it down into anything smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have an electric charge yeah. of negative one electron, just like electrons do. Uh, they have a spin of a half. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's important in classifying a muon, <laughs> yes. um, but the uh, difference between a, an electron and a muon is that an electro- a, a muon rather, has a much greater mass to it. Oh. So electrons, in terms of subatomic particles, electrons are pretty light, mm. um, they don't have much mass to them. A muon is uh, about uh, 207 times greater in mass than an electron.
1: 207 times. That's 200, quite a bit. Yeah, yeah I, mean,
0: I mean, we're talking, you know, atomic scale here, yes. pretty <laughs> tiny stuff. But,
1: but relatively.
0: Yeah, heaps bigger. And so what it means is that uh, because they have a much greater mass, uh, muons aren't uh, able to be as accelerated as quickly as um, uh, electrons when they encounter electromagnetic fields um, or various other... Impediments. Uh, so basically what it means is when uh, electrons are accelerated they can be stopped pretty easily. Mm. Muons are uh, much more weight to them. It makes it much harder to stop them. And so they can penetrate much more deeply into matter than electrons can.
1: Good old Newton's laws.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, uh, yeah, Newtonian physics at the subatomic level, it's it it's surprising. does stuff. Yeah. yeah.
1: But basically,
0: yeah. Um, and so what it means is that uh, the cosmic rays coming from uh, our atmosphere generate muons and they penetrate, and they actually penetrate down into the Earth's surface. And in fact, they even go into deep mines. Mm. Um, and some of the first uses of muons uh, for measurement were actually in the subatomic uh, Snowy, um, oh, down in the snowy hydros, in the snowy mountains, where uh, physicists wanted to measure the thickness of rock uh, called the overburden. Is that a term you're familiar with, geologist Karina? Uh,
1: yes, yes, it is. Right, yes.
0: So, yeah. What, what is the overburden? Uh,
1: the overburden is literally just the the rock and regolith and stuff. Uh, above the thing you're looking for.
0: Okay, so in this case, they were looking at the overburden over the gathika Munyang Tunnel. Yes. Yeah,
1: yeah so, so it's just the the um, geological material above okay, it, cool. essentially.
0: Yeah, so that was happening back in 1954. They were using mm-hmm. muons to measure this, um, and now they are using it to see what's happening into the pyramids. So, as I said, the muons are penetrating deep through the stone. Um, So, basically, they're putting muon detectors inside the pyramids in the parts where they can reach the that that they know.
1: Yeah, that was my question because, okay, so the cosmic rays are going in, muons are penetrating, but how do we actually pick them up?
0: Yeah, so uh, a muon detector, it's as simple as that. Oh. (laughs) that's what it says on the tin. (laughs) Yeah, the the interesting thing about these muon detectors is... um, only about 1% of muons make it through large, dense buildings such as the Great Pyramid. So it actually takes months for them to scan. Uh, It's kind of like a a long exposure photo. Mm. Um, When you open your lens in the photo, you know, you're taking photos of the stars, you might have the the camera shutter open for minutes to hours Mm. uh, depending on what sort of photo you want to take. And so in this case, they have their scans uh, sitting in there for uh, for months rather. Mm. Um, And so slowly over time they build up um, that picture uh, through the different muons coming through uh, and they can they've finally reached a point now uh, where they've got enough of an image uh, to show what's happening and so what they've, they've ended up with is they laid muon um, detecting films in the Queen's Chamber and uh, the corridor next door and started to change them every couple of months and eventually showed an unexpected muon excess region um, which basically means more muons coming through than they thought because mm. there's nothing there. And so they they reckon that there's a, a chamber there.
1: Mm. Because if there wasn't a chamber there, they'd be being blocked by the... Um, overburden and, and the building itself, right? That's
0: right, that's right. And they, in fact, they actually went through a range of other muon detection methods as well to triple-check that they weren't making mistakes and note they've confirmed that there is a great void inside the oh, pyramids.
1: so much potential.
0: Indeed, indeed. So it's pretty, pretty impressive stuff to be able to tell that. Their next step that they're going to do is um, see if they can get some... Uh, flying robots in there or something like that. Mm. Um, currently they're aiming to have a robot that can fit in a three centimetre hole to explore the large structures. Um, you know, basically flying little drones that they can fly inside to yeah. explore. Um, but meanwhile, they're going keep me on imaging um, and this um, recent discovery has extended the project for another year so they can keep seeing what's happening inside the pyramid.
1: How exciting! It's such an opportunity to learn so much more about the civilization literally thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah that's right.
0: And do you know what, Karina? Do you know where you can see a muon in Canberra? Uh, no, no, at Questacon. Really? Yeah, that's right. So one of the ways they initially uh, saw the existence of muons uh, was through some experiments, but it was actually confirmed in a cloud chamber experiment back in 1937. And uh, Questacon has a cloud chamber now as just an exhibit in the Science Centre.
1: Absolutely. It's this beautiful, beautiful table with uh, vaporised alcohol. Yeah. And you can see all the little um, particles Um, the trace of them, essentially, their path.
0: That's right. And each uh, particle that comes through leaves its own unique pattern Mm. uh, as it goes through the cloud chamber. Um, I haven't had a look at it recently, so I don't know how common a muon pops up on there, Um, but you can certainly see all the different particles coming through and see what pattern they leave. Mm.
1: I wonder whether it leaves like one of the big fat lines or one of the kind of zippy little ones.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting range of patterns that come through. And and it's amazing when you realise because if you look at this um you know sort of square meter panel mm. um there's tens of particles hitting it every second yes which kind of makes you amazed at how many particles are just buzzing <laughs> around the atmosphere around us yeah
1: and it's also ephemeral but yeah you see how many there are and, and uh it kind of puts everything else into perspective, perspective a little bit and you're like oh actually there's lots of stuff happening all the time that we just can't see
0: Mm, Indeed. Well, speaking of things that we can't see, Mm -hmm. you had an underground mystery that uh, you've been exploring. Absolutely.
1: It is in the upside down. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, uh, a very, very cool website was launched. It's called the Atlas of the Underworld which uh, sounds a little bit... It
0: sounds a bit uh, creepy. <laughs> uh, you know, do, is there a, a gate guarded? Yeah,
1: and his dog. Uh, no, so it's actually, uh, it's even cooler than that. It is a, a website full of research about zombie tectonic plates. Okay, so uh, I only learned this d- during the week because, of, of course, uh, I'm of the age where tectonic theory has always been the leading thing. Geological theory of uh, how kind of Earth is moved around and changed around and continents take action. But that theory has only been the leading theory for about 50 years.
0: Okay, because, yeah, it's it's sort of what's come through primary school. You know, tectonic plates move around and and make it. But no, that's not... Uh, the whole thing
1: well i mean we've only we only realized that quite recently so uh you know it's very conceivable that some of our listeners went through school and tectonic theory wasn't a thing yet (laughs) (laughs) so tectonic theory okay so essentially the the earth uh you know there's oceans there's continents but it's not one continuous surface right the Um, As we go down, you've got the crust on the outside, so it's kind of like, um, you know, the skin on the outside. Uh, Then we've got the mantle, the next layer down, which is a little bit molten and very ooey and gooey and quite hot. And then we have our outer core, Uh, again, even hotter. um, We're starting to get more iron content, less of our lighter minerals um, that are oxygen-based. And then, of course, we have our solid inner core, which is a, a really big hot ball of Mm. Very, very dense. So we've got all these layers and and our crust on the outside, it is uh, made up of these tectonic plates. So it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, I guess you could say. We've got uh, continental plates, we've got oceanic plates. But it's not a puzzle where you just put it into place and it's done. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. So, tectonic plates are, co- are constantly moving. And that's partly because of, you know, convention, uh, convention, convection <laughs> in the mantle. Um, and so, our plates are co- uh, constantly crashing into each other, moving apart from each other, sliding alongside each other, right? And so these boundaries between our plates, that's where we've got all that action of, um, you know, things colliding and moving apart and sliding past. Now, when plates collide is very exciting because that's when we can start playing and finding out, okay, what happens actually depends on its density. So continental plates are pretty light and bouncy and not very dense. And so when they crash into each other, um, they push up, we get mountains, so that's where we get our Himalayas, for example. Mm. Um, if two oceanic plates collide, they are also have similar density. They're much higher density. That's where we can get um, mountain ridges uh, underneath the ocean as well. But if we have an oceanic plate, which is nice and heavy and dense, and a continental plate, which is not very dense, one goes over the top of the other. So our oceanic plate, which is uh, very dense, subducts down into the mantle. Now, because it's hot and high pressure there, it starts to melt down. Now, this melting, depending on things like how much air and water gets caught up in there, we have this Benioff zone. It's about 700 kilometers deep, at, or uh, up to, Uh And that's where we get earthquakes. And that's how we can tell that, you know, we still have an active plate going down into the mantle. We get earthquakes, we get tremors, we might get some small volcanoes. Okay. But once it passes the Benioff zone, it kind of falls off our radar and it just ceases to exist as far as we're concerned, right? Right.
0: It just disappears. That's not an area we're looking at below the Benioff. No. No, okay.
1: Okay. But those plates don't actually just disappear. They don't just fall into the ether like they're in the mantle they're still there
0: yeah well um in my head like the mantle is just a giant core of molten red hot stuff yeah (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) yeah um it turns out it's not oh yeah it it's it 's a little bit more complicated than that i mean in, 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 broadly, yes, it is molten rock goo uh also known as you know as magma and things but that 's where our our hotspots come from, so not every spot is a hotspot, but they exist, so we can tell that there must be irregularities and abnormalities that mm. some place, bits are a bit hotter, some bits are a bit colder, some bits are a bit more watery, some bits are a bit more viscous. So it does actually vary with where things are. And if you're introducing new rock into it, you know, what's the mineral content of that? So there's lots of variation across our mantle and not only with depth, but also just where you are. Okay. So there's two uh, geologists from the Netherlands. Um, They're best mates and they're both named Due. Uh, (laughs) So uh, they're from the University of Utrecht. And as I said, they've just released this website and series of papers known as the Alice of the Underworld. Now, what they've actually done is gone and mapped out and used our best geological knowledge to map out 94 of these zombie tectonic plates that have subducted down. We can't see them anymore. And they've actually mapped out where they are and what they're doing. Thousand, you know, a thousand meters, uh, sorry, a thousand kilometers down into The mantle.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So they're trying to to reposition everything down there. How mm. how are they working out where, where things are? Is it based on historic evidence or some studies or what?
1: So, I mean, it's a bit older than historic evidence yeah. really gives us. Um, you know, they, uh, unfortunately, uh, the early fish of the Silurian weren't writing down and creating maps for us. No yeah. fish cartographers, sadly, because um, that would be very convenient. No, so what they're actually doing, have been doing is looking at Uh, seismic evidence, uh, amongst other things. But this one's kind of cool. So when there's an earthquake, the way that it travels through the Earth and the speed that it travels through the Earth varies depending on what it's traveling through. So it's like if you talk to yourself um, just kind of like as you're going back every day, you know what your voice sounds like. But you stick your head underwater and talk to yourself and it sounds different, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of the same. Uh, The the sound waves of your voice and the the waves of an earthquake – they travel differently through different mediums. Uh, so they've been looking at that and finding all these abnormalities and they're like, oh, hang on, that's there's, that, uh, that earthquake there, it's traveling a bit funny through the mantle. There must be something there. And so between that and looking at um, what um, the, the tectonic plates are doing at the moment, they've actually been able to map that out. So some of these tectonic plates, um, particularly some around um, the Middle East, near the Arabian plate, um, there's still remnants of it uh, around where uh, those tectonic, tectonic boundaries are. But, yeah, it, uh, it's pretty cool because it actually offers us um, a little bit of an insight of what the world used to look like.
0: Uh, so we can do the work of those fish historians who didn't write anything down.
1: Yeah, lazy fish, uh, <laughs> lazy fish, you know. Um, we, get we can a...
0: start tracing it back.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and it really offers us a really cool insight into what the environment and the climate and, and things look like. Um, also, it's really interesting because, I mean, our continents as we know them now, they haven't always looked like that. I mean, uh, a hundred, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, we used to have two big continents, uh, continents. Australia was part of a, a supercontinent called Pangaea. Uh, sorry, Gondwana. And before that broke in half, it, all the continents of the world were together, known as Pangaea. Mm. But what did it look like before that? We don't actually really know. We have some
0: ideas, but okay. don't know. Yeah. So this is starting to help us form those ideas of pre pangean times.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it, it's um, uh, making a more full picture of how Continental drift uh, actually affects our climate over the scale of hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. Wonderful.
0: Wonderful. I just love the idea that uh, what is now in our underworld was once on the overworld. And uh, I hate to think what's going to happen in millions of years' times when eventually all what's currently above might sink down again and yeah. change on the surface.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's going to be a New Zealand fair in that time
0: oh dear sorry 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 it's
1: uh yeah new zealand's definitely being twisted up on that pacific edge Uh, so
0: Mm. we might not think of it really our earth is still changing it's uh
1: absolutely uh, absolutely very very um especially especially australia we're actually moving very quickly so fast that every almost every year now our GPS systems have to be updated because Australia keeps moving. We're one of the fastest moving plates on Earth. Wow. Yes.
0: And when you say fastest moving, how how big are you talking? It's
1: very big for geology. We're moving (laughs) north at about six centimetres a year.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's... So it doesn't Not affect... really that fast, but it is fast.
1: Yeah, I mean it's fast enough that your GPS is uh, if you didn't update, haven't updated in the last couple of years, it will put you in the wrong position
0: by twelve centimeters. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I suppose you know, two years, twelve centimeters. Ten years, sixty centimeters. That's that's a lane of traffic. Type Absolutely. Of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe a bit less than. Maybe a, lane a little of bit less, yeah. but
1: <laughs> but it does have real implica- implications. Yeah. I think is the point that I'm trying to make is that you know our our position is changing and we do need to account for that mm, yeah. fantastic
0: well a very interesting and odd thing that's happening there yeah. our movement on the earth and what's happening in the underworld too well i think that's a great start to our stranger things episode here on fuzzy logic and uh, to keep those stranger things going here's a remix Luke Million there with his remix of the Stranger Things theme. Very appropriate today as we are on our Stranger Things episode of Fuzzy Logic. Strange things are happening around the world all the time. And we can explain it with science, or at least we try to.
1: We do our best.
0: (laughs) But sometimes we can't answer every strange thing that's happening, can we, Karina?
1: No, we can't. Sometimes it's just a little bit of speculation. And I have a really good example of this. something that happened... Uh, During the week, um, something that popped up on Facebook, uh, you may have seen it, was uh, dozens and dozens of octopuses uh, coming up ashore. Now, don't send any angry letters to Fuzzy Logic. It is octopuses. It's not octopi.
0: No. No, it's not.
1: Uh, A quick primer in case you're about to be like, Karina, you don't know what you're talking about. I do. Octopuses... (laughs) Uh, a lot of people assume that uh, octopus comes from the Latin, which would make the plural octopi, except it doesn't. It comes from Greek. And so uh, you could say octopode.
0: Octopode, because Oct- the octopodes. plural of feet is podi- podies. Podies, yeah. yes.
1: Uh, but in English, it is correct and acceptable to say octopuses.
0: Easy. Yes. Done. <laughs> All
1: right. Cool. Little side side note. We're done. Let's let's crack along with the story. So, octopuses um, have been beaching themselves, uh, much like uh, whales might beach themselves. So, dozens of them have been showing up on beaches in Wales. Now, it's a bit exciting. Oh, oh, a oh, bit. Can I
0: just point out here? Yeah. You mean Wales, the country? They're not taking themselves, themselves ashore onto on top Wales. of Wales. No. No, no right. I do
1: mean Wales, the top of the country, yep, uh, up in the North Atlantic, yes. Uh, so uh, they've been beaching themselves and basically coming, coming ashore and just plopping themselves on the beach and nobody really knows why. So there's a tour company and they were filming it and they were like, hey, this is happening and people were going, ah, let's throw them back in the ocean. And yes, it is the correct thing to do to throw them back in the ocean and help them out. But nobody really knows why they were washing up in the first place. Because there's not really a, a thing that. Octopuses
0: actually do. Is it the start of the octopus invasion as they try and take over the Earth?
1: Could be. It could be the start of the apocalypse, and the octopus know what's going on.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So could be either way. Just,
0: just putting that theory out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Highly scientific, broderick Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, basically, there's there's a lot of speculation. Out there, We don't actually have a lot of data, uh, but it's a bit of speculation. So um, the, the tour company that um, uh, first filmed this and put it on social media where it kind of went a little bit viral, uh, they were like, oh, maybe it's because, you know, it's around it a popular port. Uh, people like to go out watching, uh, to, to go dolphin watching in that area yeah. uh, in uh, Cardigan Bay. And they're like, oh, maybe it's because they're trying to come towards the light. Except then the experts weighed in and they were like, but octopuses like to go away from light.
0: Oh, so there's lots of light in the port. There's a lot so of light in the port. Like so... following the light. Yeah. yeah. It,
1: um, so the, the experts actually kind of quashed that theory and they're like, "No, actually, actually octopuses like to go away from light. Okay, so let's put out another hypothesis. Maybe they're moving away from some kind of chemical spill. Yeah. Okay. It's a very possible theory. It's certainly one that has precedence. Um, but there's no documented oil spill or chemical spill in the area either. Doesn't mean there isn't one, but, you know, there's no evidence of one. Okay, so let's have a look at our next hypothesis, is that maybe they're injured or sick. Yeah. And because octopuses beaching themselves is known to, to happen, but only one or two at a time if they're old and, you know, just a, you know nearing the end of their lifespan anyway and they get a bit dazed and confused and end up on the beach. But for dozens and dozens to all come up at once, that's a bit odd. So pe- perhaps they're they're injured or sick and there's some kind of um, issue. And actually, that one checks out. That hypothesis checks uh, out. Yeah. There were uh, two storms off out at sea uh, a couple of weeks before. And they think, the sci- scientists think, and this, again, is only speculation we're missing the data. So at the moment, it's anecdotal. But very possibly um, in... This storm, there was really, really low air pressure, and uh, it's, you know, whipped up the sea, and the octopuses have ha- actually had injury done to them as the sea got, you know, rough and the air pressure's all over the place, uh, and so they basically, all of their internal systems aren't working anymore, and they actually were dying and got dazed and confused and ended up on shore.
0: Wow. Yeah, didn't really know which direction they were going, and that's just where they ended up.
1: Yeah, so it's not a a fully formed uh, hypothesis, and it's it's very sad. But uh, yeah, yeah, the science is still out there, a bit of speculation and floating around. Why are the octopuses coming up onto the beach?
0: Very, very mysterious indeed. Mm. Cause, yeah, because even um, whales, which are, are something that are more commonly seen to be... Whales, breached,
1: the animal, not the, not the country. The country, yep. yes, that's yep.
0: right. <laughs> um, there's still a lot of mystery as to why whales do that. You know, it is sometimes because they're sick, but sometimes there seems to be no good reason. Um, and, you know, people wonder whether it is the human interference um, around that working uh, off... Um, Boats uh, playing mm. up with the, the whales' communication and, and navigation systems, or lots of ocean noise that people are making, uh, but we still don't quite know why. And so this is uh, interesting to see octopus doing it too.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in such an it is unusual. It is unusual. Mm. It is unusual. Yeah. So we shall see. As uh, hopefully it doesn't become a regular occurrence.
0: Mm. Very strange. Yes. Hopefully we'll keep an eye on that and mm. uh, watch what's going on. Uh, and an interesting story that I have on whales is is keeping an eye on them uh, mm. as they travel around Australia uh, because whales are a pretty mysterious creature uh, under the water. They do amazing things and, and they're travelling um all over this globe, huge migrations every year, but we don't really know that much about them. Mm. Uh, but luckily, as our technology gets better, we can start to get a bit more of an idea. Uh, one of the big things that's happening off the East Coast is uh, whale tracking, um, and there's different apps you can do it with. Uh, there's a Wild About Whales app where you can track your whale sightings, and if you add photos in there too as to where you see it, then people uh, scientists are using uh, unique uh, fluke patterns. The the tail of the whale is, and the, the flippers and, and various other parts are pretty unique to whales with the, uh, the lice and the other barnacles and stuff that attach them to the whale's. Along with their colorings, that they can kind of track where the whales are going.
1: All I want to know is: is it a game, and do I get points for it?
0: Uh, no, unfortunately, there isn't a game. But you can see your little dots popping up on the map, oh, which is cool. which is pretty fun. <laughs> um, but and you can use the map yourself too to, to see, okay, there were all these whales spotted a few hundred kilometres north a few days ago. They should be coming down my way soon if you're on the coast, of course. It's uh, a bit hard to spot whales in Canberra. A little bit. Um, but on the uh, west coast, uh, there's some scientists there from Murdoch University who are studying whales in a uh, a bit of a different way, uh, looking at the migration that happens over that side. Uh, for, for those... Uh, people who don't know the whale migrations happen there's actually three migrations that kind of happen from Antarctica up towards the warmer waters. There is the East Coast migration, uh, which comes along our East Coast. You can see them uh, often through Sydney and uh, Queensland, Maryborough going up and then coming back down. They're often spotted through Marimbula and Eden as they head back. Uh, There's the West Coast migration, which we'll talk about more in a minute. And there's also a migration around New Zealand uh, that happens through there as whales come through that way so you can see them migrating up and basically what happens is uh, the whales uh, live down in Antarctica they like being there because there's lots of food even though it's cold there is lots of food so you know you've got to weigh up these things do I want to be uh, starving and warm or cold and full it's a cold tough... and full yeah it's, it's, it... it's, it's a tough choice well and that's, this is part of the reason why they migrate because uh, they don't want to be cold and full all the time sometimes they want to be warm and hungry <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And so around uh, the middle of the year when it starts getting super cold into winter down in Antarctica, you know, water temperatures drop below zero, Mm. uh, they start making their way up north. And up north is often where they mate and give birth uh, as they make their way through to the warmer tropical waters around the reefs up there. And so when they come back down... The whales have been well-fed in, uh, in Antarctica. They go up, they're starting to eat into those supplies. For those mothers that have babies, they then start feeding calves thousands of litres of milk uh, as they uh, you know make sure their calves are doing well. Um, and so as they start coming back down, they start getting quite skinny. And in fact, I was uh, whale watching last weekend down in Marimbula and the guys on the boat were pointing out the you could actually see the rib cages of some of the mother whales as they were they were surfacing.
1: Whoa, because I've only ever seen them on their way up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when they're on their way up, they're quite fat. They're quite yeah. happy. Coming back down, they're getting pretty skinny.
1: They're ready for that food.
0: Yeah. And in fact, uh, down in Marimbula, Eden, that's one of the last big spots to stop uh, for whales, especially in two twofold bay in eden it's a protective spot for them to hang out for a bit before they make that big leap uh, off the continent and down into antarctica in the colder waters Um, so yeah so it's a really interesting thing to look at, at how the whales change over this period and so the researchers from murdoch university over on the western side of australia they're they're tracking those whales and seeing how big they are when they go up and how big they are when they come back and what changes are happening to those whales um, because they know they come up fat and they then come back down. And when they're coming back down, they probably haven't eaten for about three to four months. So they're at their thinnest when they're leaving Australia to head back down into the krill-filled waters. Um, So the researchers to look at these whales are actually flying drones above them. Uh, which is a, a really interesting way to look at it because when you're in a boat on the water around whales, you're obviously interfering in their habitat. It's a pretty invasive thing, and uh, boats are quite noisy underwater too. Uh, mm. Whales have very sensitive hearing. you know, They can communicate with each other kilometres away, uh, so it's uh, really important that they don't interfere. So flying drones above the water is a pretty non-invasive way to track the whales, and you can get much closer than flying ahead helicopter above mm. them too.
1: Yeah, because when you're up in a helicopter, it's hard to tell. you like, is that a whale? Is it a shark? Is it just a dark patch of water? It's hard to tell.
0: That's right. That's right. So flying drones is uh, a great way to use uh, current technology to, to start to understand more about the whales and what's going on. Um, one of the interesting s- signs from this research has shown that there's around 30,000 humpback whales off the West Australian coast alone.
1: That's a really good number. It's
0: it's pretty huge. Um, and when you add in... Uh, so in 2015 off the East Coast, they did a census there and there was about 24,500 humpbacks there. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at... Um, 50,000, 60,000 humpbacks, uh, which is a, a huge uh, difference from the uh, almost extinction that they faced just less than 40 years ago when we were still whaling. Mm. Um, so the population is recovering really well. And uh, the West Australian population, in fact, is one of the healthiest populations of humpbacks on the planet. Um, you know, they're in natural conditions, a pristine environment, so they can compare them to a range of other. Populations and get a better global understanding of the species as well. Uh, So yeah, so a really interesting way to track these animals and see what's going on.
1: Yeah, really, really cool use of technology for a really good reason. Yeah, very. uh, Yeah, I I wonder what the um, whether we'd be able to use it for other kinds of um, you know similar research uh, where it's difficult to get to areas, but not because it's dangerous, but just because it's invasive. I know that we use, you know, on land we use radio tracking and things like that and Mm. more collars. But, uh, yeah, I know that um, some friends of mine do some research off in arid areas of Australia and they use drones for counting as well. So yeah. Yeah, um, really cool that they're uh, applying it to the ocean.
0: Yeah, well, and and the other thing I guess with whales are pretty good in uh, in two ways uh, to be able to use drones. One, they surface regularly, mm. uh, so you can see them, and two, they're not used to airborne predators as well, so they wouldn't be too worried about a drone hovering above them.
1: Yeah, it'd be uh, non event.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, pretty cool use of technology um, to track these animals. Speaking of cool uses of technology, I've got an interesting story that's uh, coming out of Australia as well, and uh, this is one using technology to have kids doing CAT scans.
1: Oh, I am so ready for this story, (laughs) because we spoke a little bit about it before, and I I wish this existed a little earlier, and in a little few more places, (laughs)
0: Well, it's, it's, it's quite amazing that children are able to do uh, cat scans of mm. uh, cats and aliens and robots and crocodiles. And if this sounds a bit weird, it's because it's a new uh, <laughs> technology that's been created. Okay, it's not a real cat scanner, but it is a child-sized replica of an mm. MRI machine basically helping kids to get familiar with the technology Mm. before they get put inside an MRI scanner. Uh, And so what the kids can do is there's... Four toys that they can put inside their scanner. Ollie Elephant, Chris Crocodile, Robert Robot and Doris Chicken. Uh, And a child can grab any of those toys, put it on the bed of the scanner and slide it into the donut shaped device. Which detects which character the child has chosen. And then play an animation of the scan of the toy telling a story about what has been discovered. For example, Ollie Elephant has accidentally sucked up a fish while drinking. Oh no. So there's a fish inside uh, the trunk there, uh, while Robert Robot's alien owner has become stuck inside the robot. Oh, Uh, no. (laughs) I I
1: didn't think it could get worse than Ollie the Elephant and (laughs) his fish.
0: Well, uh, Doris Chicken, you know, she's not so bad. Uh, She's just got an egg inside her. So you can see the egg inside Doris Chicken there. But um, a fantastic way to make the whole MRI less intimidating. Because as we were talking earlier, Karina, you've had an MRI. I
1: have had an MRI.
0: How did it feel going into this giant donut machine? (laughs)
1: Traumatising. I'm not going to lie. It's really scary because especially someone like me I'd never you know being shoved into an MRI it's already you know you don't go and have an MRI when you're healthy and everything's good right no so you're already stressed out you're already um worried about what's happening and then you get you know you get sent into this room and everyone is lovely Uh, I will say that you know the people who did my MRI were so friendly and so lovely and Um, you know, they set me up and I had my headphones and like, what radio station you want to listen to? We can put it in your headphones. And I was like, Oh, I want to listen to this one. And they're like, cool. We'll set you up some tunes and you're in the gown and you go into the thing. And of all things, I had to have my head scanned. So it wasn't even my feet or, or anything. They were scanning my skull. So my head was in this small donut thing. And what they didn't tell me was that there's like this big knocking sound and everything's vibrating and shaking and these guttural noises. I was not prepared. Yeah. And it's really scary. I can't imagine. I was in my early 20s when I had my first MRI and I found it really intimidating. I can't imagine, you know, a, a small child going into that with as little preparation as I had. It, it would be very, very scary. And so to be able to do something like this to be able to have a soft toy that you know you know that, that what that is and they can put themselves in the doctor's shoes i think it's a really lovely thing to make it a lot less scary
0: mm. Yeah, and the other side to this is they've also developed some amazing projections and sound to transform the mri room for children so it's no longer a Uh, it certainly doesn't appear like an operating theatre or any other part of the hospital it looks like an uh, amazing cool place to be Mm. uh, and and to help relax the kids because you know children as young or as old rather as 10 or 12 are still often sedated for scanning because Mm. it can be so scary but by using this technique and creating a nice atmosphere to be in they don't have to give kids anaesthetic and they can get great MRI images from them as they're nice and relaxed going into this machine.
1: Yeah because you do have to be very very still and as a, a bit of a fidgeter I mean it's hard at the best of times <laughs> little kids there's one of you know Get in and wheel around, especially when you're scared. You don't want to be lying still. So anything that can take the fear out, I'm all for it. I think this is a really beautiful project.
0: Yeah, a nice little application of technology Mm. there. Uh, Strange things, kids scanning animals and robots, but a a (laughs) nice little outcome from it. Mm. All right, let's have a little bit of music before we get on to our last of the stranger things today here on Fuzzy Logic. I thought I'd pick a bit of strange music. Mal Webb there with his song Pack Rack, a strange song for the Stranger Things episode here on Fuzzy Logic. We're trying to get as uh, strange as we can. We've been talking about all the different mysteries that have been happening, some of them solved, some of them unsolved, mm. some of them very strange, like the happened in Sydney on Friday afternoon. Ah. Uh. Bees? Bee, bees. Bees. That's right. Three stories high, swarming around. Goodness knows why they were there. Uh, witnesses said it was like a cloud of confetti, like a ticker tape parade. But An what, angry it, cloud of confetti. Angry, well, no, they're actually bees aren't actually too bad when they're swarming because oh. they're really dazed and confused. They're homeless. They don't know what's going on. And they're just sort of concentrating on themselves rather than actually stinging you. Are
1: you saying the Looney Tunes lied to me?
0: I, I, I am. Well, it dep- <laughs> I, depends what sort of swarm. I guess is happening cuz sometimes mm. the swarms we see on Looney Tunes are to protect the hive. Yes. But in this case they were hiveless. They didn't know what was going on until the queen bee settled down on a motorbike. And then this front half of a motorbike just got covered in bees. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Luckily, there was an apiarist working nearby and she came through to save the day, got the queen bee into a container. And then slowly but surely, all the other bees came along for the ride into this container and Mm. got them out of there.
1: Not all heroes wear capes. Some (laughs) of them wear uh, beehive suits.
0: That's right. That's right. So strange thing. Who knows why they were there? Uh, but it, it was able to be gotten rid of. But, yeah, as, as for who knows why things are there, you found another mystery that's happening on the other side of the world, Karina.
1: I did, I did. Who knows why it is there? So over in the Bahamas, uh, there's a, a pretty neat little tourist attraction. Uh, it's called The Cow and the Bull. So on, on this island uh, called Elithira, uh, over in the Bahamas, um, there is a 15-metre-high 15 15 cliff, right? And on top of this cliff are two giant boulders, okay? So uh, the bigger one is, like, a thousand – like, it is very heavy, is very big, I've – yeah, a thousand tons. I was like, is that a thousand, t- a thousand yeah. tons?
0: No, because if you think about, um, we're referring to Questacon a lot today, but yes. there's a, a giant uh, granite sphere out mm. the front of Questacon, mm-hmm. and that's probably, you know, you could wrap your arms around it. Yeah, you and could th- hug it. That's 800 kilos on its own, so that's almost a ton on its own. Yes. So I'd say this boulder would be about a thousand times bigger than that. Yeah. So a thousand tons sounds quite reasonable.
1: Yeah, it's several times taller than a human. Okay.
0: Well, yeah, that's you, pretty big.
1: You could not stick your arms around it, they're, and so that's the bigger one. So the the that's the bull. The cow was a little smaller, a little taller, but a little bit narrower. So they're a bit of a tourist attraction, but they've actually become really interesting to scientists because somebody just a, a, some time ago posts posted or posited the very relevant question: How did they get there? Because they're on a fifteen meter high cliff. Mm. So they didn't just roll in across the beach. Okay, so they haven't rolled in. They're not like our, like our octopuses. Okay. Okay. It's also there's no hill above it. So they didn't roll down yeah. a hill to get there.
0: Did did they get there when the mountain came up? No. No. No,
1: not this time. Okay. <laughs> no. So Nobody really knows. So there's been a lot of hypotheses kind of flying around. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, two or, two or three years ago, a scientist, a, a climate scientist, went, "Oh, actually, probably they arrived here like a hundred thousand years ago because the climate was different and there were superstorms, and so these." boulders have actually come across at the time. The ocean levels were a bit higher in this area. The superstorms actually, uh, you know, rustled them up from the ocean floor somewhere else. And they deposited them on this cliff, which was not 15 metres high at the time. Boom, boulders, mystery solved. Except some scientists more recently, a huge, huge uh, collaboration in a whole bunch of different countries, actually went... Is that really the case, though? And they've actually fi- did some modelling and they figured out that it wouldn't actually require a super storm to move these boulders. A regular storm would do it.
0: How strong are regular storms to move <laughs> these giant boulders?
1: <laughs> well, the ocean is pretty strong. Uh, and so the problem is, you know, you still couldn't, you know, in a regular storm, you wouldn't be able to put them up 15 minutes. So we're already you have to already have uh, this ocean levels higher than what they currently are. So this has some really interesting implications if this is the case, that a regular storm is moving these thousand-ton boulders because with climate change and our our oceans are slowly rising, again, a couple of centimeters a year, but, you know, that may change – um more rapidly and it could change really suddenly if we start melting ice sheets or even losing a whole one at one go Mm uh so they're thinking that a hundred thousand years ago um when the ocean levels were higher you know there was just a couple of storms in a row and they deposited these thousand ton boulders on an island in the bahamas
0: And it could happen again. We could have oceans depositing giant rocks all over us.
1: That's right. Your multi-million-dollar Sydney waterfront could have a thousand a thousand dollar thousand-ton boulder in your private swimming pool.
0: That's quite concerning.
1: A little bit, yeah. Actually, it's quite concerning. Yeah. So it's just another one of those things—strange consequences that we probably haven't thought about—is that. Actually, if our sea levels rise and we have more storms because we have more evaporation on the oceans with a a warming climate, these are things that we haven't even thought about.
0: Mm, Indeed. Some strange things that we have to be aware of and science is going to help us out to try and understand what's going on, hopefully to help us solve the problems too.
1: Yeah, hopefully predict the problems and suggest some answers.
0: Indeed. Well... I hope, listeners, you've enjoyed tuning in for our Stranger Things episode today. I mean, there's always strange things going on in the world of science.
1: Always. It's
0: it's nice to sometimes admit that these things are weird.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit cathartic, yeah.
0: <laughs> if you did enjoy today's episode, then you can catch the podcast. Uh, head to fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com. You can also find our feed on iTunes uh, store as well. Uh, check out the podcast there. We're the one with the... Autumn Leaf logo if uh, you enjoyed today's show then don't forget to like us on Facebook as well. Uh, just search for Fuzzy Logic. Again, find The Autumn Leaf or Fuzzy Logic Sci Show S-C-I-Show on Twitter is our handle. And there you can uh, join in the conversation. Let us know what you'd like to hear on air and feel free to ask any questions as well because we are going out every Sunday in our Ask Fuzzy column in the Canberra Times. So check us out there and ask questions on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining me in this studio. Today, Karina.
1: Thank you so much for having me along to talk about the weirder side of science.
0: <laughs> and thank you, Liz, for enjoying uh, enjoying the show. I, I'm assuming you enjoyed it. Uh, but joining us as we journeyed through the stranger things, right here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. <laughs>